Valerie Lanier. My name is Janae Williams. I am Valerie's daughter. I am Janae's mother. <laughs> <laughs> We've been attending Grace Church for about two and a half years. Um, I actually came first and I enjoyed it so much and I think my parents saw so much growth in me that they just kind of came right behind me. I would say Grace is a family church, loving, helpful, supportive. If I had to describe Grace Church, I would say Grace is connected, resourceful, um, fun, um, but I think Grace is a good way to describe Grace because <laughs> well, yeah, it's full of Grace. They love us anyway, you know, so I think Grace is a good word to describe Grace Church. You know, having people, the, you know, love on me and my family and pray for us and walk with us through our hard times, through the joyful times. I feel like I've gained a new family with great, here at Grace and I, because of Grace, I now, I see, I see my neighbors differently. I see the people around me differently. But now, because of Grace, when I look at my neighbor, I'm intentional about loving them. I pursue love and relationships to show that godly love that Grace has shown me and in hopes of bringing them into the Grace family community. Grace was also an answer to prayer for us as well because when you go to church with your family your whole life, you know, we have a really large family. My grandmother is one of 21. My grandfather is one of like 13. My mom is a child of nine. My dad is a child of nine. So there's a lot of us, right? So we don't really need friends, right? You know, because we, we have so much family. But I, we got to the point where we were praying for other believers as friends and other people we could fellowship with because we had never had that kind of relationship. And so when we ended up at Grace, we hit the jackpot. When we've had hardships um, in our, with our family and different things, I've told um, the leader of my small group, Joan Marquez, one of the ways I'm reminded of God's grace and provision for us is in grace, in the people because we have these people to be alongside of us. They're right there in the fire with us, helping us along the way. And so when I say as an answer to prayer, I mean that. That's something that we prayed for for a long time. Another so, amazing thing that impressed me was when we'd come to church on a Sunday, um, people would just walk up to you and pray for you. Ask you, is there anything I can pray for you? Or anything that you need me to pray about and I would say yes you know I do need prayer and um, and so just to have people pray and then to look around and see people praying with other people it was just it was amazing it was the love and the genuineness so genuine is another way I would describe it the genuineness you know, allows you to be able to be open to take off that mask and really expose what's going on and really get prayer and really build authentic relationships with people. I mean, I have just been so inspired by the people at Grace. Um, just everyone. And it's, it's changed my life uh, a lot, quite a bit. I've been changed. Well... Well, the ladies were sharing about how awesome you guys are as a church. Grace Church, being able to love on people well, is a testimony of what God is doing in the lives of people here. And what we want to talk about is about the importance of being better together. I know it might sound like a marketing cliche, but uh, it really truly is important for us to understand that we are better together when we work together and when we testify. The reason why Val and Janae were able to share what they shared is because God was doing a work through you, Grace Church, moving in the lives of people. And that's what we're supposed to be here. And that's what we've been talking about for the last four weeks. We have one more week left, but the first week we talked about how we as a people of God are relational. God who is relational in his trinity 
is now showing forth to us through his son Jesus that we are to be relational, reaching out and caring for people. And being relational is communicating by just saying hello. Uh, it may just be simply that. And then the second week we talked about reverential, being at all of God and his presence in our lives and the importance of worship and relationship with God and recognizing his particular part in our lives. And then we talked about redemptive, being a redemptive people. God who redeemed us through his son, now we who've received that redemption can now be redemptive toward other people. And the importance that we don't allow fear to consume us. Well, this week we're going to talk about being restorative. Now, I don't want to talk about the practical ways of being restorative. That's not what I was intending to talk about today. But I really want to talk about the theory or the theology behind it and why sometimes it's challenging for us to be restorative and what God was restoring us from. So we have to understand that sometimes I think it's so vital that the people of God understand what they've been renewed and restored from. And we have to understand that when we recognize that, we'll be more mindful of it. So turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I just want to read that passage because that's where we've been uh, just kind of deriving this message from. It's been coming from this particular passage. If, if you look into church growth ministry, you'll find that if someone's either talking about community groups, small groups, grace groups, life groups, whatever you want to call it, that this is the passage that most turn to. They turn to this passage because of the first century church and how they truly worked together. They were better together. They loved on each other and cared for each other. So look with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I want to read it again so that we understand where this message is coming from. So verse 42, it says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Now the key word there is devoted. To the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Four elements there in verse 42, as we talked about in the first week, are essential. Verse 43, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So we talked about reverential miracles. And then verse 44, last week in verse 45, we talked about, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Not that they had the same preferences but that they had in common Jesus and the presence of God through Jesus. So that's important as well. But then verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and, and belongings and distributing the, the proceeds to all as any had need. So it went forth from they had something in common with Jesus to now they extended it out redemptively. But we have to understand too that in these two verses that I said I was going to come back to again this week, is I call this the 2.0 of 44 and 45. Being restorative is where we have to understand what God is doing in restoring us. So if you look at your worship guides and your outline, we want to talk a little bit about that. So we have to ask the question, what does it mean to be restorative? Well, my wife and I, we enjoy going to Colonial Williamsburg uh, so much that we've gone about five or six times already. And uh, it's been, a, it's always been the kids are like, we're going there again. I said, yes, kids, we're going there because that's part of our timeshare. We have to go. So um, we go, and we don't go all the time. We don't buy the tickets. Can you imagine? I'm like, man, Bruno, you spend all that money. No, I don't. We just walk through the towns. We always look for a freebie, and that's our freebie. So we walk through the towns, but my wife and I are history buffs. We love history, and I'm amazed. I don't care how often I go. I'm amazed of how the Colonial Williamsburg and the company that supports that and the donations that have been given with a society that supports that, continues to restore that town. The beauty of the town, that's the inauguration of our country, one of the specific towns there, the beauty of where it started with England, the, the furniture, if you walk inside of those homes, and how the labor and the money and the commitment and the dedication of restoring the pieces of furniture to try to bring back and renew what was once in the 17 and 1800, 1800s. And I often think about the furniture and wondered if the furniture could talk back when they're being restored. Because, 
you know, Mr. Woody there is sitting there, and then there's the wood craftsman with the sandpaper. And I don't know about you, but I have sandpaper when I do some painting or whenever I'm doing any kind of light woodwork, because I'm not a wood craftsman, although my, great, my grandfather was a wood craftsman, and my father and his three other brothers were um, master carpenters because of my grandfather. It just seemed like I just didn't have that as much interest. I am a carpenter, but I'm not a master. And the beauty of having sandpaper and just using the sandpaper to kind of restore it and break it down. You're breaking down the finish of the wood to get it to a place where it once was so it could shine. But could you imagine if that wood would speak and it would say, ooh, ooh, ow, 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 ooh, don't do it too hard, too hard. Use 120 or, or 150 or maybe 220 or go into the thousands. That's just too hard. But if I took an 80 or a 60 or 40 grit and started really just breaking down that wood, could you imagine... Mr. Wood talking back and saying, get off me. I don't like that. You know, slow it down a little bit. Uh, can't you use something else to kind of break me down? I, it hurts too much. It's too much pain. It's too much suffering. Come on. Can you use some other kind of product? Isn't there something out there? On the, just Google it and find it. Something, you know. And here the, the craftsman's saying, listen, if I don't do that, you're not going to shine the way you're supposed to for those people to see. We want to restore you back to the 17 and 1800s, and we need to break you down a little bit so that we can wipe you down and see the beautiful finish that you once were. See, the beauty of restoration is the finished product. The difficulty is when you have to put the labor into it. I got to tell you something, we're just moving into our home, and I'm scrubbing toilets and scrubbing showers, and um, there's mold, and there's some stains in the toilets, and I'm using a pumice to try to kind of break it down, and I can assure you, sweat is falling down. I've never sweat so much in months. Um, just all the sweat and everything, but the hard work and breaking down and trying to clean something is ridiculous. And uh, I can imagine if that toilet could speak, it'd be like, get off me now. Because I was just scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing. But the finished product turns out to be, wow, this thing actually could look fairly new now. <laughs> I mean, it's like the work and hard labor behind it uh, is, is incredible. But to restore requires a process, time and effort and commitment and dedication. And see, I see this as... One where God is doing that work, you know what I'm saying? See, one cannot be restored unless one recognizes a need for it. So the wood is fighting back the craftsman that Mr. Woody is not going to be restored well. And see, in Jesus Christ, we who are Christians, God has restored us through his son, Jesus. And unless the believer submits that believer, that person is not going to be restored well if they're resisting God. And it's important for us to understand because God is restoring us because just like the purpose of the church is to make disciples, the purpose of the believer is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And to be renewed and conformed to the image of Christ is a lot of work. It's a lot of dedication, a lot of commitment. A lot of dedication from God working on us. And God is doing that 60 and that 40 and that 80, and he's working on us, and he's breaking us down. But if I say, Lord, uh, enough of that. I'm tired. I need a day for myself. I don't need you to break me down today. I'm good. Lord, leave me alone. I need to be about my agenda. And, Lord, you're going to get in the middle of it, so why don't you take your sandpaper and get, get out of here. I'm, I'm not interested today. Maybe tomorrow, Lord, I'll feel better. It's too painful today, Lord. i got to deal with something right now. And see, God is doing that work, but if we resist him, we're not going to shine. So God would not force himself on us. He'll back off on the sandpaper. But we remain not restored. And so God is trying to do something within us. And sometimes what happens is um, we have, there's an intention. When God's trying to break us down, we have good intentions but sometimes good intentions don't always work well because one who is prideful could be mistaken as honoring God. Watch this now. If one is a gossiper, it could be one who mistakens to have concern for others. I'll share that in a minute. If one is critical, one could be mistaken to actually being a truth keeper. What do I mean by all that? It means this. Sometimes we have prayer requests and they can turn into gossip sessions. We start in our intentions, we mean well. 
But then we start to talk about those people, why they're struggling, why they're going through a difficult time. Well, I can see, honey, that, you know, they may be doing struggling right over here because you know what they'd be doing over here. And then you have someone over here saying, well, you know, I heard about them, and then they were doing this and doing it. It could turn into a gossip session, or sometimes it could be critical. And we don't know because in our intentions, God is the one who's doing the restoring. I can't judge you. I can't call out your intentions because I don't know what your intentions are. I sure enough can't judge you or criticize you or gossip about you because God is the one who's doing the restoring, not me. And so the beauty of it is that when God begins to reveal things to us, it's important for us. Why? Because our vision sometimes is cloudy. Our hearing is dull. Our senses become desensitized. It's called the unintentional cover-up. And we have to be careful because it happened at the beginning. This established at the beginning, even with Adam and Eve. So I want you to just turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, because it started with them, and it even can still continue with us at times, even as believers. So look with me, if you could turn your pages to Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, if you have a Bible there in front of you, it's the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. I want to read this to you. It says this. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So what disobedience did, because they didn't listen, was God was saying, If you disobey me and don't obey me when I tell you not to eat of it, our relationship is going to sever. It's going to be separated for eternity. It's we're going to be separated for God in his presence. And so it's important to understand that why is it so difficult for us to be restorative to one another? Because I think it goes back to the beginning. I think it starts with the struggle of disobedience and sin. I'm going to just follow with me on this because on your worship, guys, there in your outline, my first statement there is the command not to sin. God told them not to sin and they still, they disobeyed him and they sinned. And too often what happens is we have to understand from the very beginning, it started original sin. Man rebelled against God. God commanded them not to eat of the tree, but they did. And we know that that's where rationalization of sin begins. Because we have good intentions, but good intentions sometimes can be a misfire. And good intentions, although well-intended to one another, could be misdirected and misguided from God. And sometimes what we do is that we do this thing where God commands us to do something we don't do and we rationalize it. That's what happened with Adam and Eve. They were rationalizing. Because in chapter 3, verse 8, it says this. And they heard after they rationalized the sin of not eating, they started to eat of the fruit that was on the tree and they rationalized it. Verse 8, it says this of chapter 3. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, and he said to him, where are you? And verse 10 says, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. See, what happened is when, when man sinned, he covered it up. When man sinned, he covered it up. You see, how do we know that he covered it up? Well, it says that he hid himself. In verse 9, it says, or verse 10, it says this, I heard, Adam was saying, I heard your sound of you in the garden, Lord. See, that word in the Hebrew means it was a powerful voice. Kind of like today, the Holy Spirit. If you and I are sinning, the Holy Spirit convicts us. It could be a little whisper, like with Elijah in 1 Kings 19, or it could be a little bit louder than a whisper. And there's a conviction, it's a pressure that's saying, there's a sin, my child. This is sin, my child. Confess it. Confess it. But what we do is we cover it up and rationalize it because we had good intentions. So we base it on our intentions rather than basing it on the act. And God is trying to say, you don't have to cover it up. You can expose it. But it's difficult because when we expose it, shame starts to settle in. It's revealed. And so but there's another thing when shame becomes the product because we're trying to cover up reputation or ridicule. Then we have to understand that when man sinned, he condemned the other party. 
Now look with me to verse 11, chapter 3. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman made me do it. And see now, the woman made me do it. You whom you gave to me with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And so he's blaming his wife. And then his wife goes on and saying, that's no problem. I'll just blame the serpent. And see, the blame goes down the road and it goes down the line and we just continue to blame. And that's what happens is when, what happens is we start to cover up and condemn others. We cover up and condemn others. We rationalize sin, we hide it, we cover up, and we condemn others. See, this comes right from the beginning. See, restoration doesn't happen in the people of God sometimes because we think that we're supposed to shine ourselves up. We're supposed to fix our problems, not have God work on us. We don't like the pain or the suffering or the difficulty. So we say, God, hands off. I'll figure this out. I'll refinish myself, Lord. I'll do some of that, Lord. I'll figure it out. I'll just cover it up. I'll do a light little sanding. I'm good. You know, it's like quick, like a little job. Okay, it's done. Today in our culture today, it's what we want. We want the quick fix. Because why? Because if I had Google when I was a kid, I want a quick fix too. If I had the media and all Facebook media and the texting and trying to get a hold of people and touching them, I mean, you know, what we had in the commercial was reach out and touch someone, AT&T. I mean, that's all we had, but we had the phone with the cords and we had to dial. You know, you guys, you're just, you're just texting. And I mean, we had a dial and we had pay phones. We had to pay to, for the pay phones in order to call someone. So if there was an emergency, we had no cell phone. So we would have to run, run, Forrest, run. So we would have to run. I remember one time when my friend was telling me, yo, man, someone broke into your house. And I had a car then, and I was running the car, and I was going faster than the speed of light to get down to the street to my house. But if I didn't have a car, I would be like, run, run. I would run, run to whatever possible. But today, we want the quick fix. We, don't, we want light sanding. We don't want the rough sanding because it's too painful. We want a quick fix and let God just say, okay, hands off, Lord, I'm done. See, and that's why we have to understand, because we're afraid with reputation ridicule, because of fault finding, because of mistakes, because we're exposed. Today with Facebook, social media, everybody knows our mistakes. Depression sets in with Facebook. Thousands of people become depressed just looking at social media. And what we do is we continually see the game, blame, and the constant condemning and the, and the need for it. And then here's where you stop the blaming. When you find out that when man sinned, he was condemned by God. It's so important to sin in verses 14 through 19 that was necessary to see. Because when we know that we're condemned by God, it just stops. Because now we can't blame anyone. God is referring to us. But see, this is, you may think this is a crazy statement. And you're going to look at me strange when I'm about to say. But it's gracious that God condemned us. You guys are looking back at me. Why? Because now we know who we are prior to Christ. And now grace should be even greater in our lives. My son in the Lord, when in 1995 I, I came to know him, he was 14 years old at the time, his mom fell down the stairs in front of their home. She went to go get checked out, and they found cancer in her bone around her leg. It was, it was a move that, besides her problems with diabetes, they were able to assess the problem and remove the cancer from her bones just outside of her leg. Shortly, about five to ten years later, they had to remove her leg. But because of her fall, because of the challenge and struggle that she went through, she was able to live 20 more years of her life. She passed away about three years ago from complications with diabetes. And she had a heart problem after that. But her life was extended because they found out the problem. See, pain and suffering and difficulty could be used for the good. And God wants to do that when he restores us. He wants to sandpaper us down. He wants to refinish us so that we can do, God can do a work. But 
we have to recognize that we're in need of Christ. So where there is the command not to sin, there's also consequences of sin. Look with me to Romans chapter 5. We have to get to the theory of this because if we don't, we'll not fully understand what we've been restored from. So if you're looking at Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin." Because of Adam and Eve and their sin of Genesis chapter 2 and 3 into, you know, the end of 3. So therefore, Paul makes, he alludes to the fact that original sin started with Adam and Eve and then through it one man sinned and therefore through all of us was transmitted sin. But even if he didn't sin, I would have sinned just after him because we all fall short to the glory of God. And so he's sharing forth the importance of this. But here's where the key component in the Old Testament and even at the beginning, was disobedience. We see that disobedience as a light thing, something that is, oh, if we disobey just a little bit and cover it up, it's okay. I remember when I was a little boy, my mom had this little jar, this fun, funky-looking jar that said, wish I had a cookie. Well, my mom would put chocolate chip cookies in there, chips ahoy, crunchy type, not chewy because chewy wasn't existing at that time. And so crunchy cookies were in there, and I would sneak my hand, get the crunchy cookies, take cookies from my brother's box, and make sure that I put some more back in there. I would cover it up. My mom said, don't eat cookies. No, I ate the cookies before dinner. So I said, okay, mom, still disobeyed him, went in there. Yes, my kids are hearing this right now, but I did. I did that. I was a bad boy, bad boy. So I did it, but what happened was... I'd cover it up. So I'd go grab some more, take it from my brother. My brother would say, oh, man, you're taking my cookies. I said, yeah, I'm taking your cookies. And so we would argue over the cookies. But as silly as that is, at five, six years old when I did it, I disobeyed. It could be a fun little thing we can talk about. We could look back. But disobedience in any level is sin. It was wrong. I disobeyed my mom. I disobeyed my dad. And I'm, I'm moved by the fact that it separated a relationship because my mom didn't trust me. And then my brother didn't trust me. So every time I went to go get a cookie, they were like, those my cookies? When I would say, I don't know, are they? I don't know, and I mess with them. But it was like the whole idea is that disobedience severs a relationship. And so it's important for us to understand that when we're looking at this passage in Romans 5, 12 through 14, we have to understand that disobedience led to separation with God, as we talked about that earlier. That sin separates our relationship. Even now, as believers in Christ, when we sin, our relationship with God is severed. We quench and grieve the Spirit of God. We have to confess sin, admit that it, what it is, is what God calls sin is sin. Homolegeo, calling what God calls sin. Not saying sorry, not rationalizing, not saying I had good intentions, not saying I meant well. Simply to call what it is is sin. Call it point blank, that's what it is, and then you deal with it. Because when we deal with sin, then all of a sudden God's like, that's okay, I got my sandpaper now, I'm going to do this to you. I'm not going to call your sin out. I'm not going to blame you. I'm not going to condemn you anymore. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. I'm going to take my sandpaper out. I'm going to work with you. I'm going to correct you. I'm going to build you up. I'm going to conform you to the image of my son, Jesus Christ. See, that's what God wants to do. He doesn't like separation from his kids. And neither does a parent with a child. Neither does a husband with a wife. Neither does a cousin with another cousin. Neither does a brother or a sister or a brother or a brother. No one likes to be separated in a relationship. And that's why God is restoring us for the purpose of bringing us close to him. And the, the beauty of knowing that that's what he's doing. So that's what we have to understand is that sin separated us from God. It's original sin. But it's only through Jesus but here's what else that disobedience did for us. It led to self-sufficiency. I know you might think that that might carry it too far, but it does. Because what disobedience did, look what verse 13 for me. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not accounted where there is no law. And see, what Paul was saying is that there's an accountability in verse 14 as well, as I can even read that to you. It says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning, was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So but with Adam and Moses, in that period of time, death reigned. But for sin to be accounted for, the law had to come with the Ten Commandments. 
And with the Ten Commandments, it's documented, therefore identifying that one sins. And so God could hold them accountable. But, however, when Adam sinned, death reigned. That's what it means. Death reigns, meaning the separation between God and man is a chiasm. And when the chiasm, the only one who could fill that chiasm is Jesus in the cross. And so the, the understanding is that the disobedience then led to self-sufficiency. And what that means is simply that man becomes the, their own accountability. It's no longer the word of God or the law. Because, see, the law is holy, but it's a tutor for sin. The law was not meant to be kept perfect, but man tries to keep it perfect. If man is thinking, I'm going to be accountable to my own self, then it's rationalized. Sin becomes rationalized. Self-sufficiency is in order. All of a sudden, we become subjective, right? Our intentions become our standard. And so what we do is when we have good intentions, we say it's good. But God's saying good intentions is not good enough. And so what we do is that disobedience leads to self-sufficiency, and then self-sufficiency makes a mess. Because now what self-sufficiency says is, I can fix it on my time. God, take the sandpaper away. I'll use my own sandpaper, 8,000 grit, barely anything there. And I'll just scrub along when I feel like it, because I'm God, and I'm self and I can tell myself what to do when I want to do it, which probably won't even happen. Because I can assure you, if I didn't have to finish my own self up, I wouldn't even do it. I don't want to waste my time. Because if it were up to me, I wouldn't want to have any pain. I would want relaxing uh, my recliner chair in my nothing box in my brain, watching my Yankee baseball or my football or whatever, eating my chips, as many chips as I want, eating, drinking, you know, some iced tea instead of water because I know I have to drink a lot of water, but I would love some iced tea once in a while, sweetened, not unsweetened with some lemon in it. And I'd like to sit back just, just to chill out and not think about any pain. But God, when he's restoring us, he's doing a work in us, and he's taking away that self-sufficiency. He's challenging us. Because, see, self-sufficiency leads to self-promoting. Self-pride leads to selfishness. And God's saying, I don't want you to be self-sufficient because then you won't bring glory to me. You'll bring glory to yourself. I think that's the beauty of understanding that God keeps us accounted for on that. Here's another thing that disobedience does. It leads to shame. And we have to understand this because where there is sin, there's shame and guilt. That's why we cover it up. See, we're naturally going to cover things up. We're naturally going to condemn. We're naturally going to blame because we do that out of a natural sense of original sin and a sin nature. And so shame will attach itself, obviously, to that. And see, for restoration to happen, as I mentioned earlier, a believer cannot, it cannot happen in the believer unless one recognizes that it happens through the cross. Forgiveness removes shame. So when you and I sin, we don't hide it. We confess our sin, and he offers us forgiveness of sin. And then through forgiveness, he sets us free. See, we spent so much time hiding our sins, just sneaking it up over under the carpet, hiding it all up. We know from the life of David and others in the Bible in the Old Testament that it just piles up to where you have a lump in the carpet. And then the carpet has a lump saying, yo, man, what's that, man? Oh, it's nothing, man. It's just something I put under there. No big deal. No. Oh, yo, man, look at over there, man. It looks nice over here, doesn't it? Look over here. Look it over. You don't have to look over here. Just look over here. It's beautiful over here. Yeah, but yo, man, I see this lumber. Don't you want to fix it over here? No, no, no. Let that over there. I'm going to work over here and just to make sure it looks good over here. That's what we do. We cover it up. And we don't want anyone to see it. But God does. And the shame continues to grow. Look at the life of David. And the shame continued to grow. He kept trying to cover up his sin with Bathsheba and that whole situation. And it just kept growing. And I, I tell you, that's why it's important for us to understand that where there is shame, God dealt with it. He covered it up through his son. Watch this verse right here when you look at it. Hebrews 12, 2, it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He handled it. 
He covered it up. No more shame, no more guilt, no more sin. Once for all, it was done. Jesus, he was the substitutionary atonement. He stood in place for sin. No more. Whenever we sin, we don't have to cover it up anymore. We don't have to hide it over here in the carpet. Because God already covered it. We're hiding something he already covered. I mean, we're saying to God, whenever we have sin, whenever we try to cut up, we're saying, God, your covering's not good enough. I got to cover my sin up because my reputation is on the line, Lord. Everything about it, people are looking at me. I need to promote myself. I need to promote my, what I can do for me. I don't need that over there. I, I just need to cover this up, Lord. You can, and we do that. We cover it up. God's saying, wait a minute. Why are you doing that over here? I've already covered it up over there. But we're still holding on to sin. See, I think... Forgiveness needs not to be with the other person. I think forgiveness needs to start with the man in the mirror. It's the person in the mirror who needs to forgive his or herself. That's when release happens. That's when restoration really happens. And see, we're better together when we ask God to change us. We're better together when we're asking God. So, teenager, don't blame your mom and dad that you can't do certain things. Wife, please don't blame your husband when you're struggling with something. Husband, do not blame your wife for not being what you want to be in your own agenda. Friend, don't say to your other friend, it's because of you. Family member, don't blame the other person. We must look at ourselves first. God wants to restore us and conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And if the shame starts, it starts with us. But Jesus despised the shame. It's once for all done, taken care of. And so we have to understand, and lastly, what we have to understand too, is that the covering over sin, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. It was a crimson stain, but he washed us white as snow. It's the beautiful hymn of those words that he paid it all. But the covering of the sin is so important because Romans 3.25 says this, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. See, the beauty of it is that there's no fault, no fault that is greater than grace. No fault. Don't let your faults define who you are. Don't let your struggles define who you are. Don't let God stop working on you because of the pain of looking at yourself. Don't let God stop you from, from or don't stop God from doing a work and sanding you down because you don't like looking at yourself in the mirror the metaphorical mirror, the spiritual mirror. Don't let God stop. Let him keep working on you because when he does, he's shining you up. He's, he's conforming you to the image of his son. And there's no fault that can define you greater than the grace that has been offered to you. The grace, the propitiation, the beauty of the grace of God, you can't let that go. And secondly, there's no wrongdoing, no wrongdoing that is greater than mercy. Let's look back again at three, Romans 3.25, when, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Don't be afraid of that word. Propitiation is to appease, to satisfy God's anger against sin. See, God is holy. It's really simple. God is holy. He's unique. He's perfect. He doesn't have to allow anything imperfect in his presence. He won't. He can't. He's holy. But Jesus had to die in our place, in place for sin, so that now you and I who have trusted in him, God sees, the Father sees Jesus, doesn't see us anymore in our sin. And the propitiation is that he had to make access, a way to himself through his son. He had to appease, to satisfy his anger against sin. And that's why Jesus had to die. He had to be the perfect man to come on earth to die as a perfect sacrifice to appease the Father's wrath against sin. And so propitiation is the mercy seat of God in the Old Testament. The Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, they had the cherubims that were wings that covered over the Ark. 
and the covering of protection of God, the high priest would come once a year, Yom Kippur in Leviticus 16, coming in to atone as an innocent lamb with the blood to throw on the mercy seat for the sins of Israel. Once a year, and just once a year he would do that to go in to atone for their sin. Well, Jesus, our propitiation, our high priest, the one who goes in now, did it once for all, no longer one at all again. Once for all, it's eternally done. Jesus goes in as a mercy. The mercy of God, the grace of God comes in and says, now there's access to the Father through the Son. And the beauty is that we who are sinners, now we have access to God. And the beauty of it is that now God's saying, now I'm starting the restoration process. I've covered it. I've taken care of it. No wrongdoing is greater than the mercy that I've shown forth. And the beauty of it is that picture. Because that transgression, as you can read in, in Romans 5, uh, 15, the, 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 the transgression of Romans 5, 15 Right here, but the free gift is not like the trespass or the transgression, for it many died through one man's trespass or transgression. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by God's grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Meaning this, it's real simple. God created us in Adam at this level. We were not to sin, but we were able to sin. Then when they, when we sinned in Adam, we fell. Separated from God, separated from him, accursed. And now Jesus who came to die on the cross, he didn't restore us back to Adam. He lifted us above Adam. We are now by grace, by mercy, above the first Adam through the second Adam, Jesus. And now Jesus has come and has given us grace and mercy in our standing, is standing forward to be able to say no wrongdoings. So whatever wrongdoing you're doing, whatever struggle you're going through, whatever trial, difficulty, God is doing that work, and he's challenging us to be gracious and merciful. Because transgression is mentioned four other times in this passage. But lastly, this. This is the beauty of this all, is that no despair is greater than hope. You know, a couple of years ago, I was shocked when I heard about Robin Williams at 63 years old committing suicide. He hung himself in a shower. Of all people, I remember Mork and Mindy in the 70s from, from Happy Days. And I remember Robin Williams throughout his movies. And although his humor was a little bit strange in his stand-up comedies, I've never seen any of them, but a little bit strange, the man seemed very happy and excited about life. He seemed joyful. He seemed like nothing could ever, ever move him. But when I heard that he had committed suicide, it blew me away. Because this man who we thought, who, had, who, had, who was nominated for Academy Awards for Best Actor three times and won two Emmy Awards, six global, uh, Golden Globe Awards, two Screen Actor Guild Awards, and five Grammy Awards. I mean, this man made it to the top. But all his fame and his fortune did not meet the inner emptiness of his life that only God could fill. Stardom in the world's eyes was not enough. The one who made others laugh was himself living in utter despair. He listened to the lies of the enemy saying, life is hopeless, just end it all. You know, I looked up the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And in 2017, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the U.S., 2017, 47,173 Americans died by suicide. 2017, there were an estimated 1.4 million suicide attempts. And of the majority, you would think it would be Gen Z or millennials. Um, but what we have found that um, is they're saying even some older people have been committing suicide. They found at the end of their lives they were no longer valued. They were at despair at the end of their lives. Today, even although we see Gen Zs and the millennials are struggling with Facebook and social media, so are older people. In fact, men are struggling. They can't take care of their families. They can't make enough money. They don't find pride in themselves. They don't find respect. They're saying that in 2017, 70% of suicides were white males. The deaths were rising and will continue to. And how in the world 
do we find this place? Where is it that we're going to find a place to say we need help? It's only through Jesus. It's only through the cross. It's only through the fact that we have this peace. We have this joy. In Romans 5, 1 through 5, I love this passage because it gives us hope. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. You know that word have in the Greek means that it's perfect active, that God did it. He did it through his son. It was nothing you and I did. We have the peace from God. It's nothing that we've accomplished. We have access and we've been justified by faith by God. And through him, verse 2, it says, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The beauty of the fact that we've been free of our charges and the beauty of the fact that God wants to do a work. You know, I struggled with shame most of my life. Um, a son of um, two immigrants, as I shared with you before, my parents never became American citizens. My father couldn't put one sentence together in English. My mother struggled growing when we were growing up to speak English and be, improved some over the years. We would, we would be children, and I was the youngest of three, where we had to translate the mail to our parents when we would get mail and so when we were younger you know Ed McMahon would have these sweepstakes and there would be houses on there and my father thought someone was trying to buy his house under him and he would yell and scream at us and saying you're trying to take my house away from me you're trying to take my house and I'm telling him no dad it's junk mail and he wouldn't listen he would kick us out of the house and we were trying to explain to him about junk mail but he didn't understand and here he was then I know you might not think that but I was just sitting there and I was amazed that my father he just he could not read mail because we had so many Italians in our location. But as I was growing up, I was ashamed of my parents. All my friends had their parents to talk to about their struggles and their difficulties. At least my American friends, my Italian-Americans, they, they, they understood what I was going through. But I didn't understand. I didn't know what to do. I had no one to talk to and share my struggles with. I didn't have anyone to help me with homework. I didn't know what to do. But I was ashamed of my parents. My daughter comes along, who is more precious to me than anything I can imagine. And we're born to a child who has autism. And I struggled at the beginning. My wife, not as much. She's, she's an occupational therapist. She understood, but I didn't. We both struggled as parents to understand why. Why in the world would God allow this for whatever purpose? I knew he had a purpose. But as I was struggling... The Holy Spirit said to me, son, I guess you're kind of ashamed like you were your parents with your daughter. I said, Lord, I never thought I would even go there. He said, it's okay, son. I'm working on you. I love you. I'm here for you, son. Just hang in there. I said, Lord, what are you talking about? I don't get it. He goes, you were ashamed of your parents because they couldn't speak English. And you had to be the parent at times. Now you're transferring that to your child. And I just said, oh, God, have mercy. Please cleanse me. Watch me. Because, son, it's okay. I love you. I'm working on you. I want to change you. And God redeemed me and restored me. I look at my daughter. I love her to death. But the beauty of it is that God would do a work to show forth to me the mercy and grace to set me free to desire to work on me. I didn't bring up that thought, the Holy Spirit, that I didn't even know what was going on, but he says, I'm restoring you, son. Why? Because when he restores me, now my wife and I know why we have our child, because we can bless others. I was in the foyer just in the first, after the first service, and I was taking a picture with Bella, such a precious girl, and talking and talking with her and communicating with her the beauty of it. She's so precious and special. And not... I just loved talking to her and communicating with her because I could see how God created her for a purpose too and the beauty that now I have a different lens with a different heart and a beauty of God changing me. I never had these issues growing up, but now I know I don't ha I, God's been showing me these issues and I'm like, wow, Lord, I didn't realize I had these issues. 
and how God, would he's starting to change me. 30 years later, he's still working on me. He's got that 4D grit. He's like, son, we got to keep working at you, but I love you. I know it's painful. And the beauty of the God saying, what you saw as shame, I saw as beauty. The struggle and the difficulty and the trial. See, here's what I want to share with you this. Is that you are being renewed daily for the sake of another. That's the beauty of being restorative. That we are being restored for the sake of another. God wants to restore us, move us, change us, challenge us, do a work in us for the sake of another. That's what it means to be restorative. I, I, can't, I can't tell you enough of how important it is. As the worship team is coming up, I just want to share this with you. Maybe you're dealing with this. I had to come to this place where I had to share that with you to challenge you and I about the importance of walking with God. And so I want to encourage you right now as you bow your heads and you close your eyes, what are some ways in which God is trying to do a work in you? This is a deep message it's so deep because there's sin in our lives that we don't even know. I didn't know what was going on in my heart, but God had to reveal it to me. And I just want to pray for you. Let's just pray that God would begin to reveal work in us and through us. So, Father, I want to thank you. It's a hard message. It's a hard message to know that you're shining us up. It's a hard message to know that you need to do that restorative work in us. Thank you for restoring us up to this point. I was praying before the service started saying thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you that you would desire to change me. I am not worthy of you, Lord. And I know that there's sin in my life that you're still working on me. And I pray that you would begin to reveal that to your people here at Grace Church so that when you shine us up and restore us, we can be about restoring others. Because, Lord, that's what it's not about us. It's not about what we want to get out of it. We have to get over ourselves, get over our pride, get over all these things in our lives and ask you to do a work to shine us up. God, we want to be restorative for your sake. So today we worship you and we praise you and we thank you. For Although this is a hard message, it's a message necessary for you to reveal to us what we need. So God, continue to challenge us today in Jesus' name. Amen.